in the announcements, um, after she got done telling you what to do, which was awesome, that was great, Taylor, um, she let us know that uh, next week we're going to be starting together um, a journey through Scripture um, using the Bible app that many of you probably already have. It's called Version. If you go um, on, on whatever smartphone you use, um, there is the, uh, the first app that would come up for you if you search for Holy Bible is going to be this Bible app, Version, and, and the, the icon just, it says Holy Bible, okay? It looks like a little tiny Bible. Um, and we're going to be using this together to uh, study scripture. Um, recent study says that 70% of you, um, that's how you read scripture now. Uh, if that's not you, then we have other ways of doing that. We're going to be printing that off for you as well so that you can follow along. And we, ha- we have Bibles available for you too. If you need a Bible, let us know um, and we will get you one. So we want to, as a church, read scripture together and immerse ourselves in, in scripture together. We believe that this book has the power to shape our lives, that it is the word of God. It speaks the truth into our lives, that it's inspired through the Holy Spirit to speak transformation to us. And so we want to dig down deep into that. The plan that we're going to be following uh, is a 90-day plan that takes us through the entire New Testament. 90 days sounds like a lot, okay? That's three months, obviously. So February, March, and April, that's basically the rest of this semester. We're going to walk through the New Testament together, reading daily together as a church body. And uh, I really want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, Many of you probably made a New Year's resolution to read Scripture every day. And the majority of you who made that resolution probably have failed already, okay? And that's all right. You get to start all over with the rest of us, okay? It's going to be great. So let's plan to be a part of that together. Um, One way that you can search that, we'll we'll walk through all of that next week. But if you want to if you want a preview of that, um, well, we'll send you the information. All right, we'll email that to you of how, how you can kind of get ready and be prepared for that. So um, I look forward to walking through that with you and um, sharing in that with you. Confessions. Confessions. Confessions we've said repeatedly here together as we've been through the study, through the gospel stories. Confessions reveal a hidden truth. They reveal a hidden truth. Uh, a few months ago, Sarah's dad got remarried. His name is David. He is a fantastic man. He is a pastor and a great man. I'm blessed to have him as a father-in-law. And he married Melinda, who is a wonderful woman. Sarah and I both knew her well um, before, and, and we are blessed to have Melinda as a part of our family now. And uh, so three months ago, they got married. It was a time of, of joy uh, for all of us. Um, but, but the first date that they had together, when they were uh, about to meet each other really for the first time and go on this date together, uh, Sarah's dad was actually at our house. And so like a teenager, he comes down the steps, right, ready for this date. And he's all dressed up, man. I mean, he is looking sharp. He is in his pastoral best, Okay. And so he comes down and he's like, how do I look? And I'm like, Dave, you look great if you're going on a hospital visit, man. All right. <laughs> we got to switch this up. And Sarah's like, Dad, all right, you, yeah, you look good for like a board meeting or something. But, but we need to mix this up. And so Sarah decides she's going to give her dad like a real quick makeover. All right. 
And she's like, it's okay, Dad. We're only going to change one thing, your entire outfit, okay? <laughs> and so she goes into daughter mode, and she's, like, getting her dad ready. And so she makes him, like, she picks out different shoes for him, and she picks out different jeans and a different belt and a different sweater and even makes him wear one of my shirts, <laughs> No, it wasn't plaid, all right? It was very small checks. That's different than plaid. Totally different. So he comes back, and he's put together, and he is looking sharp, man, and he is ready to go. And you can tell he just feels like he feels like a new man, right? And he's looking great. And uh, so after this entire makeover that she just put him through, then we send him out the door, and the last thing Sarah says to him is, Now, Dad, just remember... Be yourself. <laughs> After a total makeover, right? <laughs> Amazing. All right. Confessions. Confessions is not like rearranging the appearance, okay? Confessions is, is coming just as you are. Confessing, confessions is revealing. Confession, confession is about revelation of a hidden truth, all right? Not putting forth an appearance, but a revelation of a hidden truth. Throughout the gospel stories, we see repeatedly these people who have these encounters with Jesus, and they make these confessions, revealing a hidden truth about who Jesus is and who Jesus is becoming to them. And that is changing their lives. They make these declarations of these confessions of faith in Jesus about who he is and about who he is becoming to them. Today, we're going to look at the next one of these, uh, and it comes from the book of John, chapter 11. And this is the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Remarkable story. Remarkable story. John, chapter 11, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And we get a glimpse into who Jesus is and to why Jesus came. First of all, before we get too much into the story, let me give a little bit of background on John, okay? Some of you, this, this is going to be a little bit familiar to you, but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page of understanding the weight of this story and being able to understand, like, what exactly is happening in this story. So John is, is one of the Gospels, okay? There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels, which basically means same view, same perspective, okay? They are telling many of the same stories, um, presenting them in, in, in similar ways, okay? Actually, so Mark would have been the first gospel written, and about 80 to 90% of Mark shows up in Luke and Matthew, okay? So it's, it's very much overlap between those three gospels of what we're learning about Jesus, the stories that we are hearing. John is a different gospel. It's, it's very different from the rest, okay? It comes from a different perspective, and it's bringing a different view, okay? It's set up different. Uh, the style is different. The stories are different. And John was written, this would have been the last gospel written. So in many ways, John is presenting this like, okay, you, you have been familiar with so many of these stories, and now I'm telling the story of Jesus in this way. And so we get several stories that we don't have in the other Gospels. Lazarus is one of those stories. 
the way John is broken down, basically in its most basic form, we can break it down into two separate pieces, okay? The first section is John chapter 1 through chapter 12, and that is known as the book of signs, okay? The signs pointing to who Jesus is, the signs pointing to why he came. The second section of the book is John chapter 13 through 21, and this is known often as the book of passion or the book of glory. Passion meaning Jesus' journey to the cross, okay? So the first section, uh, chapter 1 through 12, covers the three years of Jesus' ministry, okay? So we have three years packed into 1 through 12. The second section, okay, uh, which basically is about nine chapters, covers the last week of Jesus' life. So you've got 12 chapters for three years of Jesus' ministry, nine chapters for this last week of Jesus' life. This close friend of Jesus writing, basically squeezing out every last drip of memory of that time with Jesus. And as a matter of fact here, there is a dialogue that goes over the, the course of several chapters that if you have one of those red letter Bibles, that's where it's the, the words of Jesus are in red. If you turn through there, you're going to see like just page after page of just red. Okay, several chapters that are just the words of Jesus on his last night with his disciples. Very powerful, very powerful. So this is how John is set up, okay? Uh, Our story today comes at the end of this first book, the book of signs, the book of signs pointing to who Jesus is and to why he came. And then the second book is kind of the culmination of that when we see the full revelation, all of those other things pointing to this and making sense of it, okay? So today we're we're at that kind of the, the end and the climax of this first section of the book of John and we can sense in here that we are headed for a shift we can sense that we're headed for a change now the two books both kind of follow the pattern of a v okay you have it happening in both uh John 1 begins by this this huge like basically exalting Jesus okay talking about Jesus being before time being before all things being equal with God being God himself and then the incarnation Jesus the word becomes flesh okay and then the rest of the book uh, of that section has this building 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 the miracles that point to who Jesus is building and culminating in the triumphal entry where Jesus is crowned basically this coronation of Jesus this is the one we've been waiting for so we see the 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 descent and the incarnation the humbling and then the building up the second section follows the same it goes from that high point of the triumphal entry to a very quick descent as we sing that things in the course of one week have turned completely and the crowd has turned against jesus and he is headed towards an end we were not expecting headed towards the cross death burial in the grave but then of course the resurrection the ultimate in their lifting up. So we see that both books follow that same kind of pattern through the life of Jesus. And I just wanted to do that real quick. Okay. <laughs> Total excuse just to do that. Okay. Awesome. So that, that's what we have going on here. Now back to uh, John, okay, to this first section. In John 1, we get from the very beginning a sense of what kind of theme John is getting at with this book. Who knows what the first three words in the book of John are? In the beginning. Awesome. Great. 
In the beginning. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1.1. Exactly. John intentionally begins his book the exact same way that Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible, the very first words of Scripture, okay? He begins his book in the same way that Genesis begins, in the beginning. Now, the people who are reading this, and even us as we read this, this doesn't escape our attention. Immediately, we begin to make the connection. We've heard that before, and we link it back to where we've heard it before. And we get the sense that John is telling the creation story all over again. That what we have in Jesus is a new creation story. This theme continues as he begins to talk about Jesus as the word, right? As the word in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Beautiful, beautiful when he describes Jesus as the word. Now go back to Genesis 1. How is it that God creates? He speaks, right? He speaks in that creative power. And so we see that connection. Jesus is the word, right? Jesus is the one that brings creation into existence. Also, what's the first thing that Genesis 1 tells us God creates? Light, light. Jesus, God says, let there be light. And if you read John chapter 1 in this poetic prologue that he lays out where he talks about Jesus being the word, he also uses the light, the word light repeatedly. It's like he's beating you over the head with it, all right? Have you gotten it yet? Do you understand what I'm trying to say yet? He is layering this, layering it, pointing us back to the idea that John is presenting for us Jesus as a new creation story. And everything that went wrong in the garden will be set right through Jesus. He has come to restore. He has come to conquer the fall, to redeem us, and to take back to the Father what was lost through the fall. Beautiful, beautiful. This is what John is hammering away at here. And even stylistically in the way he begins his book, uh, the, the, the first verses of chapter 1 are set up like a poem. It's a poetic prologue that he gives to the rest of the book. And after the poetic prologue, then he flips into narrative for the rest of the book. Same thing happens in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, if you go back and look at it, you can see that it's designed as a poem, as a poetic prologue to the rest of the book, setting it up, preparing us for what's coming next. John is incredibly intentional in the way he is layering these things and hammering away to us. This is a new creation story. Who is Jesus? He is the new creation. He is the one who makes all things new and we are made new through him. That's what John has to say to us. So there we go. Now, as we move into this miracle It's important for us to understand the concept of miracles as well. As we talked last week, every time we see a miracle in the gospel, we understand that it's not just for the sake of a miracle, okay? It's not just kind of a flash and flare of, hey, look at what I can do, all right? It's so much more than that. It always points to two things. Number one, the identity of Jesus, and number two, the mission of Jesus, In identity, we get the sense through these miracles that we're not talking just about a strong moral teacher, 
all right, about a wise sage with these great philosophical ideas that we should listen to. No, there is power and there is authority in the ministry of Jesus. And we see that through his miracles and we begin to understand there is something more to him and it's pointing us to his identity as the son of God, as God himself in the flesh. Beautiful. Number two, the mission, why he came and the miracles point to that as well. So as we get to this point in the book, it's important for us also to understand why this miracle lands where it does and this miracle's placement in the book, okay? In John chapter 2, we get the very first miracle that Jesus performs. It's changing water into wine at a wedding, and there's plenty of symbolism to dive in right there. We're not going to do that today, but you should look into that and dig into the beautiful symbolism that is written into that. Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding, and after telling the story, John says, this was the first of the miraculous signs of Jesus. Then the second sign is that that, uh, Jesus heals a royal official son. And after telling that story, then John says, this was the second of the miracles of Jesus. And then John stops counting. Okay, he stops counting after that. But it's almost like by counting the first two, he's kind of put that click in our heads and he's kind of set the rhythm for us. And he's like, okay, here was one, here was two. And then he begins to tell the stories again, and we're intended to count along with it as it goes. And here's what happens, okay? Miracle one, water into wine. Miracle two, Jesus heals the official son. Miracle three, Jesus heals the man by the pool. Miracle four, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Miracle five, Jesus walks on water. Miracle six, Jesus heals the blind man. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Miracle number seven. Miracle number seven. This is intentional. This is not coincidence. John is layering this in for us, and he is sending a message about the power of this miracle. In the Jewish mind and understanding, seven is this sign of fullness, of completeness, right, of perfection. And, and he is saying all of the other miracles have been pointing to the identity and the mission of Jesus. But this miracle is the full glimpse of what he has come to do. And he intentionally places it here in this order, sending us a message. Jesus is the new creation. This is what he's come to do. Seven would have been tightly tied in their minds to the idea of creation Six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rests and sets it up as a Sabbath rest for us. And on that Sabbath, we reflect and we look forward to the restoration of all things. And here in the seventh miracle, we see the first glimpses of exactly what that is going to look like. Minds are blown by what Jesus does here and by the ways that it points to who he is and to why he has come. It's the ultimate foreshadowing of what he is about to do over the course of the week that is to follow. So let's look at this miracle together. You guys still with me? Okay, all right. Half asleep? All right, here we go. (laughs) Let's read. Okay. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Let's stop right there. Why does he do this? Why would he do this? If you love Martha and Mary and Lazarus and you hear that Lazarus is sick, why don't you get up immediately and go and do something about it like you can? You're the only one who can. Why don't you go and do something about it? And Jesus makes this statement to the disciples. This sickness will not end in death. But we realize a little bit later in the passage, it does end in death. And by the time Jesus finally shows up, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. What is with that timing? Why did you do this? Why didn't you move immediately when you could have done something to stop this? What do you mean the sickness isn't going to end in death? You're wrong. It did. It ends in death. It ends in death. But in this glimpse, we begin to see the timing of God and the understanding of God. Jesus does not see things the way that we see them. Where we see an end, Jesus sees a beginning. The poet T.S. Eliot says this, the end is where we start from. And that's how it works with Jesus. When we reach the end, when we see the end, he sees an opportunity for a beginning. Rock bottom is a chance to start all over again. And even a sickness that ends in death, Jesus promises, can result in resurrection. This is who we are dealing with. He goes on. Skip ahead to, chapter, to verse 17 in the chapter here. On his arrival, once, once Jesus finally moved and finally got there, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is not something he was surprised by. This was something that he knew and something that he did intentionally. Even though they wished he would have come at the moment to heal Lazarus before he died, Jesus had something greater intended for them. And Jesus had something more for them. And in his patience, in his patience, he begins to reveal his true power. He begins to reveal his true power. This actually becomes an honor to Mary and to Martha and to Lazarus. They become the first glimpse of what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because they had to pass through this. They experience fully what it means. So here's what he says. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So many of the Jews had come from Jerusalem to to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here... My brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, now there's a theology in their minds and an understanding in their minds that at the last day, at the end of it all, that the judgment of God will, will come and that the righteous are going to be resurrected. Okay, sound familiar? That the righteous will be resurrected. And so she had her theology right. She understood this and she believed this. And so she says this to Jesus, even in the midst of her grief, she says this to Jesus. She says, I know that on the last day he will, he will be a part of the resurrection. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. Who is Jesus He is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. In this moment, Martha knew all of the right answers. You don't think she had heard all of that already at the funeral? You know, four days worth of people coming up to her saying, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. In the resurrection at the last day, you will see him again. You'll see him again. It'll be okay. This is not the end. It's okay. You'll be all right. Well-meaning friends that have been saying these lines, these comforting lines to her over and over again. But without a doubt, when you're in a moment like that, they just, they just fall flat on your heart, don't they? Over and over again, she's been hearing this. And Jesus cuts right through all of the cliches. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. We're not talking about a doctrine. We're not talking about a theology. We're talking about a living, strong person who has conquered death and has pioneered the resurrection life. This is it. We do not believe in salvation. We believe in Jesus who is our salvation. We do not believe in justification. We believe in Jesus who is our justification. We don't believe in sanctification and holiness and eternal life. We believe in Jesus who is our sanctification and our holiness and our righteousness and our eternal life. It is all wrapped up in a real, actual person. Understand that. It's wonderful if you can debate theology. I'm happy for you. That's great. That's great. But do you have a real experience with the person of Jesus Christ? That's where, it's, that's where it is, man. That's where it is. We believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus cuts through all of the cliches here. And he said, I'm not asking you to remember what you learned in Sunday school and spit it back out at me. I'm telling you, I'm standing in front of you right now. And I am the resurrection. And I am the life. That is who Jesus is. As it goes on, we get, we get moving on here. Um, verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they all followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So they followed her to mourn with her and to be a part of that mourning procession there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse verse 35 of chapter 11. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. And yet it is heavy and weighed down with serious significance. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus weep? I mean, he knew it was going to be okay. He knew what he was about to do for Lazarus. He could see ahead. He knew exactly how all of this was going to play out. He knew it wasn't the end. And yet he weeps. Why does he weep? His heart breaks. Why does his heart break? Why? When he knows how it's going to turn out. Here's the thing. Jesus was fully God, absolutely fully God. And we see that power and the reality of that on display as the story continues. We see that full fledged. But in this moment, we also see that Jesus was fully human, fully God, fully human. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. And all of all of Christianity pivots on this point right here. That God himself comes to us. He is not a distant divinity who says, you've got to find your way to me. God comes to us. Fully God, fully human. Everything else depends on this idea. If Jesus Christ wasn't fully God, then his death on the cross doesn't mean what you think it means. Then his death on the cross was just the act of a martyr. No. No, no, no. He was fully God who laid down his life for us as a sacrifice. God himself going to the grave for us and then picking his life back up again. It all hangs on this. Jesus was fully human. Absolutely, we see the power of God displayed in his life in this story. But we also see this aspect of who he was, fully human, as he weeps by a graveside over the loss of his friend, over the grief that he sees in people that he loves, over the tragedy of death and the way that it has wrecked this world everywhere you look. And in this moment, Jesus weeps and his heart breaks. He knows that God's in control. He knows that Lazarus will live again. He knows that God has a plan. In fact, he knows exactly what that plan is, how it will happen, and when it will take place. He knows all of that. But he weeps. And he weeps. He gives us permission in this moment to do the same. Jesus grieved over this moment, over the loss of his friend, over the grief that he sees around him, over the tragedy of death in this world. He grieves in that moment, and he gives us the permission to do that as well. We understand the ultimate reality and the ultimate hope, but Jesus knows that the present reality is very real to us. 
and that death hurts. And he hurts right alongside of us. Jesus grieves with us. I mentioned earlier about Sarah's dad getting remarried. And that was a time of joy, but it did not come out of a time of joy. It began out of a time of deep, deep pain. Almost five years ago, Sarah's mom discovered that she had a brain tumor. One year later, almost four years ago, it took her life. And this passage right here was a rock for me personally during that time. To understand that Jesus enters into our grief with us, that Jesus bears that alongside of us, was so comforting to me personally. On the day of Mary Ann's funeral, the family got together before at the graveside, just the family. And they asked me as a pastor to say some words at the graveside. What do you say? What do you say? I didn't know what to say, so I had to go to this. This is what I came to. I understood the hope and the promise of eternal life. I know that. I know that. But in that moment, what I needed was this, to understand that Jesus stood beside us and wept with us at a graveside. Wept with us at a graveside. And even when we can't get all the way through the words that we had prepared, he is right there next to us, absolutely weeping with us. There are many ways in which I am nothing like Jesus. Shocker, I know, right? There are many ways in which I am nothing like Jesus. I have sinned and I have done it a lot. Quite a lot, actually. I have failed to love my friends and my neighbors, not to mention my enemies and strangers. I have never healed anyone, not one person, of anything. I have never preached a sermon that changed the world. (laughs) I thought I might hear an amen at that point. (laughs) I have never awed a crowd with authority and wisdom, but I have done something. I have wept by a graveside. And in that moment, I was very much like Jesus. Because in this moment of John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus is very much like us. He weeps with us. And the weight of grief is not something that's foreign to him. He enters into every part of our experience. And he understands it intimately And personally, where is God in tragedy? He's right there in the middle of it with you. Where is God when I'm grieving? He's right beside you, grieving with you. That's where he is. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And so do we. As it moves on from here, we see that Jesus didn't stay simply weeping by the graveside. Look what comes next. It says this, when the Jew, then the Jews said, see how much he loved them. But, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man 
from dying. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Again, deeply moved, it says. I'm going to stop there for one second. Here's something really important about this, okay? We need to understand this. Uh, begin, uh, before, it also says that he's stirred up and he's moved. And the idea here is not that Jesus is angry about the, the lack of faith of the people around or anything like that. He's not, doesn't seem that he's angry about that. There's a New Testament scholar uh, named Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, all right? And he says this in his commentary on the book of John. He says that in this moment, the right word that should be used here is not just like deeply moved, like it's an emotional thing. The word that should be used here is the word bristled. That at this moment, as Jesus makes his way to the tomb, Jesus bristles inside. He's stirred inside. He's provoked inside. And it says there's this sense of like this this anxiousness about Jesus in this moment. Why? Because he looks around at the effects of death in the world. And and Dr. Kostenberger says that in this moment, Jesus begins his assault on death. His assault on death. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who kneels beside us and weeps at the graveside and then stands up to go call death a coward and tell death that the reign is over. The reign is over and the time is coming to an end when death has the final say. So Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend. There was a cave, a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there for days. Martha, always the very practical one in the situation. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? My translation of the Greek here, my personal translation of it is, then Jesus turned to Martha and said, watch this. All right. (laughs) So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Who is Jesus? The sent one. Why has he come? For this moment right here. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Who is Jesus? This is who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the death of death. He is the one that comes toe to toe with death and says, it's over. It's over You have had the final say long enough. I have come to bring your end. Your time is over. The man, Jesus Christ, lays death in the grave. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And here it is on full display, on full display. Jesus throws the first punch right here in his assault on 
death. And in this moment, Lazarus becomes the first crack in the dam. The old structure, the structure where death had the final say, the old structure has now been compromised. And suddenly, as Lazarus steps out, there's a leak. There's a drip. There's a trickle. And you can hear the groaning, the cracking of a wall that has been weakened and is about to give way. And it's the warning sign. You better run for high ground because a flood of life is coming. That's what Jesus has come to do. It's over. It's over. You thought death was the end, but it's only the beginning. Now the enemy is quite frustrated over this. There's a lot of desperation now in the enemy because the one tool he had, the one weapon of ultimate fear that he had against us has now been snatched out of his hand and has been turned against him. And now his greatest threat in the hands of Jesus has become our ultimate hope. Who is Jesus? He is the resurrection and the life. I'm not talking about theology or doctrine. I'm talking about the living person himself who has been to the grave and has come back to tell about it and has said, listen up, people. This is how it ends. This is how it ends. This is who Jesus is. With him, the end is the beginning. The end is where we start from. Jesus kneels with us. And he weeps beside us at the graveside. He enters into our pain and he feels the weight and the depth of that completely. Your full experience, he feels it. And then he stands up to become the conqueror over it. Your greatest threat has now been silenced. Your greatest threat has now been silenced. Jesus has conquered. How are you going to live in response to that? Jesus, thank you for the truth of this story, for the power of it, for the way that, as John tells it, he beautifully builds to this point for us. And he has us waiting on the edge of our seat as miracle after miracle. He's showing us who you are and now the ultimate picture of why you came and the ultimate foreshadowing of what you were about to do yourself. God, today we make our confession our bold and public declaration that you are life, that you are resurrection, that you are king over everything, and that absolutely grief is a part of our lives because it was a part of your life. And we're not going to believe anybody who tells us that being a follower of you makes our lives easier. It's not true. It's not true. Coming to church does not mean that my life is going to get easier. Tithing 10% does not mean that I have job security. Believing that you're the life does not mean that I won't experience death. But it does mean that you have conquered all of those things and that you are life. Even when death gets its say, you have the final word. And in that we take hope and we take heart and we take courage. You are the resurrection and you are the life and we believe in you. Amen.